the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. I am Seth Leibson. Monday, June 13th, 2022, as we head into our third hour. Did you know the second January 6th hearing took place today? Well, again, it really wasn't the second hearing. It was the second in this round of hearings. Hearings from the Select Committee have been taking place since last year. Now, you wouldn't know there was another hearing today unless you go to CNN, where it is in red headlines above everything else. Same over at the New York Times, minus the red. They don't do color there, but it's implied at many levels. Oh, and of course, there was the impeachment. You do recall that, right? An impeachment hearing over President Trump inspiring the riots right before he left office. An impeachment hearing from the House, just like this select committee hearing. Let me register one small disagreement with some colleagues I hear speaking about all this, and I think they'd agree with the cavil, which is this. All of these alarms and excursions are not about getting Trump or stopping Trump from running again. They are about getting and stopping you. First, soldiers banging drums and blasting horns as they enter the stage. That's what Shakespeare had in mind when he talked about alarms and excursions. Second, how the Dems doing it? Well, there are big lies and there are big lies. Big lie to the Democrats is that the 2020 election was fraudulent, according to Donald Trump, and anyone else who believes that lie is responsible for the Capitol riot because those who stormed the Capitol believed that, too. There is one more element to this dialectic. Anyone who supports Donald Trump is responsible as well, for they are supportive of someone who inspired a riot. And there are many ways to cobble together the notion supportive. Do you or did you support or do you like or did you like the ex-president of your party? Jacques, insurrectionist or something else like white supremacist. No one less than Joe Biden just last year claimed the January 6th riot was a white supremacist riot. Never mind the ringleader most recently indicted is an Afro-Cuban. No problem. There can be black faces of white supremacy, just as I suppose Hitler was not a white supremacist, according to the view on ABC, or at least the unapologetic unapologetic lead host and spokesman for that show. Yes, I know you ask, doesn't this make white supremacy irrelevant? If it can include African Americans and exclude Hitler, does the phrase even mean anything anymore? Well, people know it's a negative, and the same people who proliferate that word now are the same ones who proliferated the word racist and the charge of racism. But when it comes to stand standing for anything you don't agree with, from tax policy to environmental policy, and was so casually thrown around to attack people with Orthodox Jewish children and grandchildren and adopted babies from countries like Haiti, yeah, the word loses its poignancy and bite, if not complete meaning. Syntactical saturation is what we call that. It was overused, that phrase, so a new one had to be found. That's white supremacy now. But how all of us, you may ask? Well, last year, Nancy Pelosi said the Republican Party was hijacked by a cult, the whole party, 
and that the January 6th riot was based on white supremacy, anti-Semitism, and Islamophobia, her three horsemen. That's what she said it was based on. Now, I've probably seen as much or read as much about the January 6th riots as the average American, maybe a little more, maybe less than others, but somehow I missed the anti-Semitic and Islamophobic part. But I've also listened to Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden a little more than the average American, maybe less than others. And I recognize those same exact phrases and words as being the same phrases and words they have been calling not just Donald Trump, but all Republican leaders for the past at least 10 years. And only earlier this year did the chairman of the National Democratic Committee say that the Republican Party is, quote, a party of fear, fraud and fascism, close quote. Do do note, well, they are allowed to use the word fraud. Still, it's that fascism word I find so interesting. This would be why the Democrats keep lying about January 6th and Donald Trump. The same reason why they lie about what racism means or what extremism means and what white supremacy means. To get to fascism, you have to have state control, you have to get racism, and you have to have violations of democratic rights and civil liberties. Zero zero of that happened under Donald Trump. Zero. He reduced government reach by reducing the federal reach into businesses, by reducing regulations. He increased the economic and incarcerated conditions of every racial minority in this country. And there was more free speech and protest under him, about him, than any other president. It was not his administration that tried to create a disinformation board or dispatch the FBI to investigate conservative school board parents or have his Surgeon General recruit Americans to report on fellow Americans or pressure social media companies to continue to censor dissent. Oh, you'd want a soup son of suspending elections or democracy, too, if you were a fascist, which is why Adam Schiff keeps claiming Donald Trump stopped the first peaceful transfer of power in American history. This would be an example of another lie, and I await to be instructed when we have stumbled on anything the media will call a big lie by Democrats just yet. January 6th, to repeat, was not a transfer of power day. That was done on January 20th, and it was as peaceful as any on record, far more peaceful than four years prior at Donald Trump's inauguration, which was indeed attended by riots in D.C., that saw cops having to go to the hospital, and nobody cared. Those were riots carried out by the left. No, January 6th was never a transfer of power day. It was a count the electoral college vote day. And that in the past has indeed had some, shall we say, non-Pacific moments. To challenge the 2004 re-election of George W. Bush, California Senator Barbara Boxer tried to stop the count of the Ohio delegation on the floor of Congress. And anyone who saw Fahrenheit 911, Michael Moore's mockumentary, will recall more more celebrated Democrats rising up in 2001 to challenge the Electoral College count for George W. Bush, again, as fraudulent. Moore's movie had Democrat after Democrat strutting in college, excuse me, strutting in Congress to challenge the Electoral College vote. Al Gore himself would continue to be introduced at speeches, per his request, as the elected president of the United States after George W. Bush was sworn in. No, I haven't even gotten to and hope I don't need to the entire book of quotes from Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, Jimmy Carter and almost every other mainstream Democrat claiming Donald Trump's election and thus presidency was fraudulent and illegitimate for four years more, actually. 
This is all why I say there are lies and there are lies, big lies and big lies. But to tie us all to it, part of it, inspirational of it and responsible for it, that is the Democratic Party's task right now. Now, all this when the only violence, the only evidence Donald Trump inspired or supported the riot on January 6th is zero. It is so far less than zero that the House Democrats deliberately had to edit out of his January speech where he told the crowd to march peacefully and patriotically. Edit it out. Cut out. The same crew that edited in and opened the first impeachment hearings over Trump over talks with the president of Ukraine and how they edited in manufactured fake an ersatz conversation between Donald Trump and President Zelensky. Fiction. Meantime, riots and invocations of death and homicidal fantasy are just fine if it's from the left. In fact, encouraged. People will do what people will do is how Nancy Pelosi answered a question about the 2020 riots in Baltimore. Who says protests have to be peaceful? Mr. Chris Cuomo, late of CNN, said on his erstwhile network. You can do all this if you're on the left because the left has been hell-bent on confusing speech for action, especially violence, and violence in action with speech. They defend their actions, violent or peaceful, as speech. They attack our speech, almost always peaceful, almost always as violence. Want to know why the networks didn't cover or mention the attempted assassination of Brett Kavanaugh and they didn't? Or why the New York Times put it on page 20? I just told you why. So now there is clearly an effort to tar and feather every Republican, ride us out of town on a rail, and criminalize our speech. This is a violation of every form of political civil liberty I can think of or that history has warned us about. Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson, in the midst of World War II, wrote it beautifully and importantly. He said, quote, freedom to differ is not limited to things that do not matter much. That would be a mere shadow of freedom. The test of its substance is the right to differ as to things that touch the heart of the existing order. If there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official higher petty may prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or for for citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. As for blaming speakers, legitimate speakers, for the actions of the extreme or the unbalanced, you simply can't do that unless you are prepared to ban nearly all political speech, starting with Bernie Sanders and Chuck Schumer. It's called the heckler's veto. And it has been the justification for keeping everyone from Dennis Prager to Heather MacDonald away from our college students. Now, I fear it's being used to keep conservative speech away from all adults, lest some insane or unbalanced or asterisk to a movement do something recklessly. Again, if I may, Oliver Wendell Holmes warned about this a long time ago, even before Justice Jackson. Jackson, He said every idea is an incitement. Eloquence may set fire to reason. But let me put this clearly. We don't ban ideas and we don't ban eloquence. We are at a flashpoint right now brought on by a long convulsion of shutdowns and riots. Our movement opposed. Our movement opposed them largely. We opposed them vociferously. They didn't. And yet we are blamed for the burst in the bubble. We are blamed for endangering people's health, and we are blamed for stirring riotous behavior. 
It's the oldest, uh, oldest and oddest projection I've ever seen. And it is so odd how ubiquitous it is, absorbed and promulgated by the mainstream media. They are trying to make scapegoats of us for illness and for violence. That is how tyrants take power. That is how dictators move a population. Blame people for things like pestilence. Blame them for things like radical dissent. I plea we all understand this. I plea we all understand this is what is going on right now. And this is what has taken place. We are not untermenschen here or anywhere. And indeed, it seems to me, if civil society is to succeed and have a future, it is our perspective and not the Marxists and socialists and civil liberty opponents' view that must be replanted to take root here. Those can never take root in the light of day, those kinds of things. And that is why they lie so much. So much is hard to find just one and call it big. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. If you're looking for a great investment opportunity with an equally great return for investors, check out Why Refi. These folks are my friends, and what they're offering is a fixed, no load interest rate up to ten and a quarter percent for investors, all in a collateralized, secure portfolio. Why Refi is in the business of helping people dig out of debt by paying off their debts, doing so with dignity, and getting all kinds of benefits along the way, including FICO score recovery. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm. As I say, run by great people. I would love you to check them out if this is something you're interested in. You can go online and visit them at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then R E F Y. Investyrefi.com or give them a call at 855 316 3087. Now, if I might return to something that's undergirding the entire January 6th, Lollapalooza. It's this notion that we are trying to tie, and this is a very, very precarious thing for a society to do, especially a civil society. We are trying to tie violence to rhetoric, third-party violence to first-party rhetoric here. That's a very, very tricky thing to do. It's kind of the obverse of the heckler's veto. It's charging the speaker for the unexpected, unforeseeable actions of someone else. Now, Ronna McDaniel over at Fox News, well, she's the chair of the RNC, but has an op-ed over at Fox News where she talks about how you almost exclusively only hear this about one side. And I think it's because the Republican conservative side understands the First Amendment a little better and takes this stuff a little more seriously, perhaps because we've been the target so often. Rona McDaniel writes, just a few weeks ago when asked if he condoned protests at the homes of justices, Chuck Schumer answered yes. When asked a similar question, former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki refused to condemn the protests and says, I hope they remain peaceful. It's stunning to write this, Rona McDaniel writes, but let me be very clear. Showing up at someone's private residence to harass, 
and intimidate them into carrying out your political agenda is unacceptable. Violent rioting is unacceptable. Political violence is unacceptable. Democrats' comfort with violent rhetoric and conduct should disappoint you, but it shouldn't surprise you. Think back. 2019, Representative Maxine Waters instructed a crowd of angry activists to harass members of the Trump administration if they saw them in person. How about when a crowd of protesters attacked Senator Rand Paul and his wife as he walked the streets of Washington, D.C. in 2020 or in 2017 when a Bernie Sanders devotee shot and almost killed Representative Steve Scalise along with four others? Were they driven to commit their unspeakable violence because of angry, divisive, far-left propaganda? Every American remembers the devastating riots that took place in the spring and summer of 2020. However, Democrats would like you to forget the role they played in stoking the fires of resentment that led to billions in damage and dozens of death. Remember someone named Kamala Harris saying that they aren't going to stop and they should not stop shortly before promoting a bail fund on social media for the violent rioters? We all know there's a reason we don't hear much about the left's pattern of violence. Their allies in the mainstream media carry the water for them. How many of you know that over the last week, four, four pro-life centers have been bombed by anti-abortion activists? How do you know? How, how many of you have seen this? You don't see this. And if it's not reported, it just doesn't happen, Right. We all know why there's a reason, don't we? We all know. Who could forget the infamous shot from CNN in which a reporter stood in front of a a burning city with a headline describing the riots as fiery but mostly peaceful? Just imagine the media coverage if a gunman had shown up at a liberal justice's house instead of Justice Kavanaugh's. Nothing can conceal the truth. Today's Democratic Party is more than comfortable condoning, encouraging, and demanding violence to achieve its political aims. We hope the American people can understand this radicalism for what it is and not forget it come November. My fear is that they will not because my fear is that speech equaling violence only applies to one side, just as not speaking. Silence equals violence only applies to one side. One rule for me, one rule for thee. One rule for the Greeks, one rule for the Romans. That, uh, that is not what law is supposed to be. That is not what equal justice under law is supposed to be. That is not what freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and freedom and the right to petition redress of grievances is supposed to be. We're supposed to have a letter rip attitude here. And when one side gives as good as the other, that's not called a crime. It's called politics. The Democrats want to stop politics and make it impossible here, at least for one side. That's the addendum. That's the tale I want to put on my monologue. And that's what January 6th hearings are all about. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. I am Seth. It is a delight to bring back to the show. It's been a while. My fault. Uh, Professor Green, Jay Green, he is a senior research fellow 
the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. I've been following his work in education for years. If uh, some of you who are kind of education policy wonks know, Jay Green has been one of the uh, most important education uh, scholars in our country. Education Myths was one of his big books, but only one of them. Jay, welcome back to the show. I want to talk to you about a great new study you just did, uh, but I appreciate your time and uh, joining the Phoenix audience again. Well, thanks for having me on. You betcha. Uh, all right. So new new uh, study you put out uh, over at the Heritage Foundation, where you work, uh, I think much needed. Puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and youth suicide. Um, one narrative on this, what shall we call a basket of issues, one narrative has dominated, uh, as so often happens when a new issue comes along. And then we, um, we who take social science a little more seriously have to do some catch up and some serious reading on something that never occurred to us in the first place. And you did that. And you have uh, discovered what, Jay? Tell the audience what you did and what you discovered. Sure. So a, a common claim that is being used now is that puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones need to be widely and easily available to minors because if you don't make them widely and easily available, young people will kill themselves, right? So this is, this is a form of emotional manipulation that's occurring in our public discourse about how to handle young people with gender issues, with mm-hmm. gender dysphoria. And it kind of short-circuits the political and values arguments, because it basically says if if you don't do this, if you don't support this, you just want young people to die. Right. We're put and, in a blackmailed position here. Do this or they right. die. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Comply and, or and die. Right. Parents are, are finding themselves in a situation where they they're uneasy about whether they should uh, agree to these things or not, and and they're being told by people at their schools, by by mental health professionals, that if they don't go along that their kids are going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also hear it from the Biden administration. Jen Psaki said these are life-saving interventions. Right. Um, and, uh, and as it turns out... And, and it's clean. really, Jay, if yeah. I might, it's really the whole op-ed world, too, isn't it? I mean, again and again, anytime there's an op-ed in a respectable paper or a scholar on a on a quote unquote respectable paper or a scholar on cable talking about this they're talking about yeah no you got to do this to you know reduce the risk of depression and suicide i mean this this is what we have been hammered with everywhere everywhere right right and and it short circuits really what are ultimately a lot of values disputes right right we can't say how do we feel about gender how do we think about how we raise our children instead we have to say look Let's set aside all of our thoughts about those values disputes, and let's just save lives, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And but in truth, um, this claim that it saves lives is an empirical claim based on only a handful of studies, and those studies are really bad. <laughs> the first thing I did was I read through these studies, and I couldn't believe that this was the basis for this widespread claim. And then I thought of a better way to do it. And the study that just came out from Heritage Today uh, represents what I think is a much better way of analyzing this issue that gets at a a more uh, uh, credible uh, causal relationship between puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and the risk of suicide among young people. Let me pause you at that 
point right there, Jay, uh, and ask you, what would be an example for the audience to work with? What would be an example of studies that use such a flawed methodology it made you scratch your head and wonder how these even got into peer-reviewed uh, Sure. So it appears there are only actually three studies. Okay. Two led by this guy, Jack Turbin, at Stanford Medical School. Uh-huh. Uh, one by the Trevor Project, which is a trans advocacy right. organization. Uh, and uh, Jack Turbin is, is himself a very outspoken advocate. So, so it's not, I mean, they might try to disqualify me as an advocate uh, in some ways because I'm a heritage or something like that. Look, I was a professor for many years. You introduced me as a professor. Yes. I'm so I, proud. Yes. No, you uh, were one of the few in education <laughs> policy that actually was doing serious research. Yeah, you bet. Right. So I'm, I'm a longtime academic, um, you know, and, and Jack Turbin has very good credentials, too. But, but anyway, it's just a handful of studies, two by, led by Jack Turbin, one by the Trevor uh, Project. And what they do is they use surveys of convenience samples of transgender adults. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. That is, they just find, not a representative sample, but they find people who identify as transgender, and they uh, give them surveys. Um, it's not necessarily representative of everyone who has gender dysphoria or has issues with their gender in general. And um, they look back and say, yes, I had to do this. Otherwise, I would have been more depressed. Let me, let me take a well, quick... Let, yeah, let, yeah, let, me, yeah. let me have you respond to that and then take your, your method when we come right back. I have to hit the commercial break. This is important, if you don't mind. We'll, we'll be right back with more from Jay Green. You want to read his piece, Heritage.org, Puberty Blockers, Cross-Sex Hormones, and Youth Suicide. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I am Seth, delighted to be joined by uh, Dr. Jay Green, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. We're talking about his new and comprehensive study on puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and youth suicide. Jay, right before break, sorry, I know you wanted to say something. You were looking at the extant research on this, three major studies most people cite to, highly flawed, the design of which was to ask people who identified as transgender later in their adult life and give them surveys. And I, I interrupted you, but go ahead. You can yeah, take it from there. I mean, there. so basically all they do is they ask them, when you were a teenager, did you seek these drugs? Right. And then did you get them? Yeah. And then they compare those who sought and got them versus those who sought and did not get them. Mm-hmm. The problem is that there's a reason why some might seek them and be unable to get them. Uh-huh. Namely, you have to be, you're supposed to be psychologically stable to get these drugs. Right. So one of the reasons why people might seek it and not get it is that they were psychologically unstable to begin with. Right. And the, their study does not control for or have any information on the initial psychological state of the people they're comparing. And so really all they're finding is that the people unable to get the drugs started out with worse, worse psychological conditions and later report a higher rate of thinking about suicide as adults. So this is yeah no this is really this is this is confirmation really bias at hyperspeed yeah. yeah I don't even know how to yeah. wrap my head around how okay keep going right. keep going right. okay. so so what I've done is is take advantage of a natural policy experiment it approximates a randomized experiment which frankly we really should have for using these drugs most times you know we don't use drugs without a randomized experiment where we randomly assign some people to get it and some people not we do not we don't have that here but. But we do have a natural policy. Some states 
have made it possible for minors to get health care without their parents' consent. And right. Other states have not. Right. And then I take advantage of the fact that, that that's where it's possible for minors to get it more easily. And then it's when um, it's, it's possible to get these drugs. Because these drugs actually did not exist in the United States as a treatment for this issue before 2010. Right. So it's also new in the first place. Right. 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 And then what I do is I compare the, the suicide rates among young people in the states where it's easier to get it to the states where it's harder to get it, both before the drugs came along and after the drugs came along. Mm-hmm. And what you see is that before the drugs come along, there's no difference between these kinds of states. After the drugs come along, the states where it's easier for, for young people to get them, the suicide rate spikes up. And only among young people, hmm. if you look at the suicide rate among older cohorts, there's no change in those states. Hmm. And the increase is 1.6 extra suicides mm-hmm. per 100,000 mm-hmm. young people, which sounds like a small number, but no, no, no. a 14% increase yeah. in the suicide rate right. as a result of the introduction of these drugs in states where it's easier to get them. Do we do any do we I, this is such a new field of research it's fascinating Jay that you're going to get in on the ground floor with your study on this and I'm it hopefully I'm thinking it will change the debate or the discussion a little bit what's your sense of that will it will it counter the narrative a little bit a little bit people will have to be forced to deal with I, what you found Well I think what it's going to do at a minimum is it's going to neutralize this this extortion of if we don't support this young people are going to die we now have this empirical claims, um, and may, so it's, you know, policymakers may have a hard time sorting out whether I'm right or the other people are right. I, I, of course, I believe I'm right. Right, but, sure. But, it, but, but the fact that it's now at least in dispute allows us to shift the conversation back to the values question. Yeah. Or, or, or the pump the brakes just a little bit. While we, yes, okay, so now let's shift it right. back to the values question. Go ahead. That's, that's, right. That's, and, you know, so, so is this really the kind of society we want? Um, and, yes, a general cautiousness. Might we want to just be careful with these drugs, limit their access, uh, raise the minimum age, make the eligibility criteria stricter, so that we are a little bit more careful about how we use them, and, and perhaps we should study them more rigorously with a randomized experiment before we go full steam ahead with handing these things out in school, you know, which is, which is where we're about to go. Can I register a note of cynicism just to get your feedback on it? And it's, sure. it's, it's, it's serious, Jay, which is... When I say pump the brakes, the minute I said it, the moment I said it, I almost wanted to retract it because you look at what this society put kids through over the last two, two and a half years, and there were warning signs all over the place early on. I mean, there were experts early on saying you can't do this to kids. You can't snap your fingers and totally upend their social and educational lives and isolate them from one another and take away their athletic activities and instance and instantiate, you know, the fear of God into them that they're going to kill grandma. You cannot do that and expect, uh, you know, lack of a better phrase, you know, normalcy, virtue and enterprise. You can't you can't take their chests and expect that of them. And we are now seeing the unleashing of a mental health crisis that people, you know, are just beginning to wake up to as if they 
this is all new to them. It doesn't seem, in other words, what I'm trying to say is this is a society that cares to pump brakes on behalf of kids when there's a larger social agenda at play. Am I being too well, cynical? My, my only, you, you are right to be cynical, but my, my cause for hope is that the kinds of problems you're describing occur more uh, severely when people make decisions about other people's kids. But if parents are in charge of making these health decisions about their own children, and if they're not being coerced by, by professionals telling them that they have to do it or their kid will die, then I think those parents are going to pump their brakes. Because most parents want their sons to be sons and their daughters to be daughters, and they would like grandchildren. Um, I mean, this is a very normal thing that most parents want. Um, and I think it's the cautiousness and the concern of parents for their own children that will counteract your legitimate but cynical. No, you make a really good point. You make a good point because what you have discovered is very helpful, much more helpful to the parents in making these decisions on behalf of their minors, whereas what I was talking about really didn't allow too much parent involvement. That was done by institutions, right? I mean, that's well, the a fair private point. schools where the parents right? were more yeah. in charge. They were open that's to the higher rate a good for point. in-person instruction. That um, is a good point. Well, that makes yeah, me feel better. Could be that makes me yeah. feel much better. I assume yeah. you're getting a little bit of response and pushback. <laughs> this is this is really getting probably the biggest reaction of any research I've ever done. Uh, and I've, I've been involved in a bunch of hot issues before. This is a very, it, it, it invokes a lot of passion, which I understand. People care a lot about this, this but I, I think that we need to remember how to keep our heads and be cautious before we run, run full steam ahead with changing our children or our society. Um, and I think that this study uh, uh, provides further support for that prudent approach. Well, I, you know, I just was so happy to see that you did it, Jay. Uh, it couldn't have been done by a stronger, uh, more serious academic who, who, who knows about uh, children and youth and education and parental policy. I want to just flag it one more time for our audience. J.P. Green is the author, G-R-E-E-N-E. It's over at the Heritage Foundation. Heritage.org, Puberty Blockers, Cross-Sex Hormones, and Youth Suicide. Jay, uh, listen, on behalf of the community that still believes in uh, common sense, normalcy, and childhood, thank you. Well, thank you. Much appreciated. Uh, folks, Heritage.org is where you can go to read this study. Uh, having reestablished contact with Jay, we're going to um, stay close to him. I'm glad you, uh, you're over at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm glad you could spend a few moments with us. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Portions of this show brought to you by the folks at Balance of Nature. Man, I take it every day. Just took it. Uh, just took it before the show a little bit. A uh, little bit ago. It's a proprietary blend of sixteen whole fruits and fifteen whole vegetables in one daily dose. Just take it once a day, and you boost your energy, you boost your health, you boost your immunity with pure, potent plant power. Best. What would I call a supplement? I don't even know if it's a sub. Best product I've ever taken. I just love it. And you can too. Balanceofnature.com. They're fruits and veggies. Check them out. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. I was talking uh, with Jay Green just offline a few moments ago after our, uh, after our interview. Dr. Green and I were talking about you know the convulsions we have put our children through. And it is we adults who do it. I was reminded, 
you hear me from time to time quote Neil Postman. He uh, passed away hmm, 10, year, 10 or so years ago. Really one of only maybe two sociologists worth paying attention to, serious sociologists worth paying attention to, did some great work on um, children, childhood, how children learn, how they develop, and how adults uh, can alter and change and disrupt their natural path of growth, their natural maturation process. And in the reintroduction to his book or the reissuance of his book, The Disappearance of Childhood, he writes an introduction where he says children are not a political force, but they are a force in preserving childhood. One might call them a kind of moral force. Perhaps we can call them even a moral majority. Children, it would seem, not only know there is a value in being different from adults, but care that a distinction be made. They know perhaps better than adults that something terribly important is lost when the distinction between childhood and adulthood is erased. American culture is hostile to the idea of childhood, but it is comforting and and exhilarating to know that children are not. It's beautiful in a way, isn't it? Tragically so. I'm Seth Liebson. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class is now dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.